I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Kimber Russell interviews a trial lawyer who runs her own personal injury practice focused on traumatic brain injuries. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit communities. We're joined today by Ilya Lerma, a trial lawyer in Arizona who runs her own personal injury practice. After graduating from the University of Arizona College of Law in 1999, already with some personal injury experience during law school, you joined a plaintiff's firm. Now, why did you choose to go to a plaintiff's firm and not a defense firm? Initially, I planned to practice medical malpractice defense. I was very interested in medical issues and defending doctors, and I thought it would be wise to get some experience on the other side. Did you have any kind of interest in working for insurance companies at all? I absolutely did. That was initially my, my greatest interest. And what was it that changed your mind? Honestly, it was three months in a plaintiff's firm. I became very familiar with a lot of the claims handling practices of insurance companies and their adjusters. I saw people who were very legitimately injured and not able to get the care that they needed. They were forced into litigation, oftentimes on claims because they were not able to get a reasonable settlement offer from the insurance companies in third party cases and sometimes against their own insurance companies. So. After about three months of that and seeing my clients really struggle to recover from legitimate injuries, I decided that there was probably no way I could ever work for an insurance company after that. Can you tell our listeners more about what the practice of personal injury is like? Who's suing who and why? Well, it's a broad range, and I would say it's becoming more and more specialized as time goes on. But the area of plaintiff's personal injury requires the practitioner to represent injured victims in a myriad of circumstances. If somebody's injured on a piece of property, if it's a commercial property or a home uh, owned by a neighbor or something, 
those are premises liability type cases. There's also, of course, car crashes where the lawyer would represent the injured party in claims against another insurance carrier or against the claimant's own insurance company. There's also a myriad of other specialized types of personal injury, such as medical malpractice. There's brain injury type cases. But in all instances, the practitioner is representing injured victims, typically against another person or entity for claims for injuries arising as a result of someone's uh, negligence or gross negligence. Would you, would you tell us a little bit more about how insurance companies get involved in this? That's probably a podcast in and unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a number of, of issues uh, the insurance companies get involved typically once a claim is reported or made, and that can be done before the client comes into your office, or if the client has not yet reported it, once they are signed up and represented, the uh, attorney or the attorney's office will make the claim on the injured party's behalf. And that kind of gets the ball rolling in terms of advancing the claim forward. And then if the claim is able to be settled after the client has had some treatment and is able to cover their medical expenses and recover time for lost wages, pain and suffering, those types of injury damages, then the case is resolved. Otherwise, it then moves into litigation. Do you personally specialize in any particular types of cases? Uh, I'm not a certified specialist. There's not a certified specialist for brain injury, although that is the focus of my particular practice. I have been very familiar with neurological issues. I have a, a brother with an intractable seizure disorder, which kind of spawned my, uh, my interest in medicine initially. I had planned to attend medical school. And uh, I've always followed brain injury medicine, even back 20 years ago when nobody was trying concussion cases. The firm that I was with at the time was adamant that we make those claims on behalf of our clients. And so that's something that I have continued to this day. And, and most of my practice, even though the brain injuries arise in a myriad of circumstances, such as car crashes, bike accidents, trucking accidents, and nursing homes, my focus tends to be on brain injury medicine. I have a personal question that I want to ask because I have issues with e-scooters. Have you seen any uptick in brain injuries related to personal use of these electronic scooters yet? Not in my personal practice, but I train with lawyers all across the country. And I, I have several colleagues that I know who are involved in the legislation to try to regulate helmet use because of the uptick in brain injuries. So I know it's a problem and a concern nationwide. I, I have my own personal issue with personal injury because my husband was involved in a case like this and it, it can be very emotionally charged. So how do you manage the, the emotion that in, is involved and just kind of the psychological impact of these kinds of cases? I'm going to be honest and say it's really challenging. Uh, 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 most claims get resolved after the client has had some treatment and a demand letter is sent to the insurance company, a lot of times those claims are resolved, but it's still, it's still an exhausting process. Anytime you're injured, there's a lot of strain on your life. You're not able to work. You're not able to do household chores, pick up kids. I've had clients with brain injuries who actually forgot you know, to pick up their kids. 
those difficulties end up becoming more compounded after there's a lawsuit. And once there's a lawsuit, it's incredibly stressful because the lawyer's calling and depositions are getting set and more time has gone on. And so it can take an emotional toll on the client, but also on the attorney. And that's a, that's a tough place to be. My advice to most attorneys, especially younger, is remember that you are your client's advocate. You're not their friend. Because a lot of times, I think as a younger attorney, I, I got into the role of trying to be emotional support for my clients. And that's not, you're not always making the best decision as an advocate in their lawsuit. And so that's sometimes a, a bit of a danger, but there's a, there's a lot to manage in terms of the emotional toll for certain. So you got really extensive practice and now you have your own firm and you've, you've decided to take fewer cases than maybe you would be exposed to if you were in, in a larger practice. How did you decide to, to take fewer cases? Well, I was partner in a firm that was a significantly larger plaintiff's firm in terms of numbers of cases. We had for anywhere from 400 to 500 cases, which for a small firm with two to three lawyers at a time is an enormous load. And we were set up well. We had uh, very good teams in place. We had a pre-litigation team. We had a litigation team. And dividing the work made that possible. And I'm starting to see now some of the larger firms, a lot of the advertising firms have pods in place where they're able to kind of navigate these significant figures. But as an attorney, your attention is divided when you have complex cases such as medical malpractice cases, wrongful death cases, perhaps 1983 claims or government entity type claims. And when you're trying to manage those as well as, you know, 20 to 40 car crash cases, your attention is completely divided. There's really no good way to do that, at least in my experience and certainly talking with other uh, plaintiff's attorneys. So what I did when I opened my own practice was I made the decision that I would refer out the smaller cases and I would concentrate on the more complex injury type cases. And that's what I've continued to do for the last four and a half years. I want to drill down more into the business model of a personal injury firm because it's different than what many types of firms do with the hourly billing or even a fixed fee type arrangement. How does a typical personal injury firm work? I'm so glad that you asked because I really see the plaintiff's practice changing. Teams now have to be very well organized. Back 20 years ago, when I first started practicing, we weren't filing on quite so many cases. We were able to settle a lot of the smaller cases without having to file a lawsuit. We had good teams in place. But now you're seeing, because of a result of a lot of insurance industry standards and the way that they evaluate claims, it's more and more difficult to settle, I would say, smaller cases. And by that, I mean soft tissue type cases where there may be not a trip to the emergency room. There may be some chiropractic or physical therapy, but there's a several weeks of treatment those cases are becoming increasingly more and more difficult for a practitioner who's not set up with a good support team to navigate. And so 
what I'm seeing, and this is mostly personal, I, I, I truly don't know what the research is showing, but from my own experience, and as I said, my exposure to attorney firms nationwide, what I'm seeing are a lot of firms taking over that role of the small solos. A lot of this larger, I would say, mid-sized to advertising firms are taking on some of those smaller cases because they have teams in place that can make those cost effective. Most solos and small firms really can't afford that much litigation because the, the litigation is so time consuming and expensive. And, and honestly, most lawyers, um, certainly in Arizona on a mid-sized to small case, they're almost losing money as soon as they file on it because the, the time commitment is no longer really worth the return. So a lot of those cases I think are being driven to, to firms that are better equipped through larger teams um, and pods that can do the workup more efficiently than some of the smaller firms. Well, you mentioned how cost prohibitive it can be to handle certain types of cases unless you can do it in volume. What type of capital did you need to start your own solo practice? <laughs> um, I needed a lot more than I had. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I had left my partnership of 10 years and wasn't certain that I was going to continue practicing law. I went through a small phase of disillusionment and was really considering either changing fields, uh, going into a different area of law or abandoning the law altogether. And it was just through a series of circumstances that I ended up opening my own firm. I had not planned on it. I had no savings. It was the absolute wrong way to go about opening a plaintiff's practice because contingent fee practitioners, we advance all the costs. So when a client comes in, they don't have any money to hire a lawyer. They can't pay you by the hour. And so you undertake to represent them for an exchange in the fee agreement that once the case is settled, any costs you've expended will be recovered at that time. And so you have to expect that you're going to be advancing money for depositions, court filing fees, expert witness fees, and that can be extremely expensive. So starting a plaintiff's practice the way I did it, um, it I, is extremely ill-advised. Fortunately, I managed through a, a lot of good fortune and some support. Uh, but it, it, I would definitely advise anyone who's considering starting their plaintiff's practice to look into backup funding be because increasingly it is becoming more and more expensive to advance costs through litigation, especially if you're doing anything complex such as brain injury or medical malpractice. Those expert costs can be killer. Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. 
With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes. We've already spent time on the difficulty in general of starting a personal injury practice. Can you talk about any additional challenges you face as a Hispanic woman in this kind of practice? I'm glad you asked that as well. It's probably something that I could give a two-day CLE course on. Women are getting more and more into non-traditional fields of practice, and I think plaintiff's personal injury really qualifies. I will be honest and say that as a younger attorney, I looked around and didn't see very many women at all. I could probably restrict the women I saw in my area personal injury uh, to one hand at the occasional state gathering. So it was a little discouraging to, to not see women, certainly women of color, among the ranks of attorneys. However, I had a lot of mentorship outreach from older attorneys who recognized that we really needed more diversity. And I was kind of specifically targeted to join the trial lawyers organization here in Arizona. I will actually be there next president next year, the first woman in a really long time. I think it's around 20 years. Fortunately, I had the opportunity to have mentors who pulled me in, but a lot of them weren't able to give me the advice that I needed in terms of how, how is our practice different? How do we try cases differently than, than men? And so the men were my role models. And I had to learn the hard way that the things that worked for my male colleagues in trial weren't necessarily appreciated, welcome, or effective in the trial court setting. And it took me a number of years of kind of beating my head against the wall, um, losing uh, and, and engaging tactics that I know were not effective for me. Once I started becoming more comfortable with who I am, who I wanted to be in court uh, with my understanding of the law, and I got just more comfortable in my own skin, really, I started having more success, not just in terms of cases that I was bringing into my firm, but in terms of resolution of cases, all of a sudden I was able to resolve really difficult cases, cases that some of my colleagues said, you know, you're never going to get any money on that case. And we did, you know, we, we did. And so I, I would say that I learned the hard way in a lot of ways, but I also had good mentors who assisted me to the best way that they could. And, and certainly being in a partnership for 10 years, I really learned how to run a practice. And I think running a practice for a minority woman isn't necessarily that different from anyone else, except perhaps that you have a different client base. There's a lot of times in my career that I've had 
referrals of Latino clients because I speak Spanish or because we share, you know, cultural heritage or, or something like that. But the actual operations day to day, I think are pretty standard across the board. What would you say the biggest challenge was for you just as a solo practitioner when it comes to representing your clients, standing up in court, or just doing the day-to-day business of law? Time management. (laughs) Uh, The plaintiff's practice is a very demanding area of the law. Not that the others aren't. Um, Perhaps I'm biased because this is where I've spent the last 20 years of my life, but my kids would even joke that there's no way they would be a lawyer because they they come into the kitchen at four o'clock in the morning and there's 12 arbitration binders stacked up. You know, I've got trial exhibits behind me for the case right after that. And I'm cramming my head full of facts and figures and numbers, you know, for the next arbitration. It's not always the, the kindest profession or, or area of the law in terms of interpersonal relationships. There's a lot of late nights. There's a lot of sleepless nights getting, you know, a bill in the mail for $25,000 for one expert that you weren't really expecting. Those things are really stressful. And managing time, learning how to allocate time between family and personal obligations and some me time. Most of my colleagues have absolutely no kind of dedicated practice in terms of nurturing themselves on a personal level. Fortunately, I've discovered yoga and meditation, and that helps manage uh, a little bit of my crazy in the worst of times. But uh, most of my colleagues don't. And, it, and it's, it's really unfortunate because as much as I, I love what I do and I, I love representing the people that I represent, I have great clients, it's incredibly stressful. And, and taking away from time to exercise, time to meditate, time to do yoga, it's, it takes a toll, an emotional toll. And, and after years of that kind of neglect, I decided that I was through with that and I needed to be able to manage my time better. But it's a, it's a daily practice to try to incorporate some kind of balance into my life. Now, you just mentioned arbitration. Alternative dispute resolution isn't something that many people think about when they think about personal injury. So can you tell us a little bit more about how it works? In Arizona, we have compulsory arbitration. So claims where the damages asserted are $50,000 or less, by statute, they go to arbitration first. Uh, They can be appealed to a jury trial thereafter. But the arbitration proceedings for us are pretty common in the personal injury arena. But I'm also seeing more and more arbitration clauses that are contained within contracts. And you'll see them quite frequently in nursing home litigation and in that context where the nursing homes and typically the parent companies that own the nursing homes are trying to restrict their liability and eliminate the right to a jury trial by having the the patient agree to arbitration. Has this created more impediments for your clients in getting a good result for them? I would say so far, not really. However, it creates an enormous 
procedural problem and actually there's substantive problems as well because a lot of these arbitration clauses don't specifically identify the terms in which the arbitration will proceed. They're very vague. And even if they refer to um, the Federal Arbitration Act or State Arbitration Act, those acts still don't always cover every circumstance. And because there's some ambiguity in terms of interpreting what they mean by this claim will be resolved by arbitration, that can sometimes be just an enormous headache. For example, I have a a case currently where there was an arbitration clause, but only covering certain claims. So the case has now been divided with half the claims in superior court and half the claims supposedly to be resolved by arbitration. However, at the end of this, we are anticipating enormous constitutional problems because our punitive damage claim, rather than following both types of claims, has been divided and sent to the arbitration, which we believe is not constitutional. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of, of procedural and substantive problems that you can have with these clauses because they're just, they're so ambiguous. And it's unfortunate because it just drags on the litigation. These clauses are designed to supposedly streamline the claims and get to a resolution more promptly. But my experience is that it doesn't really do that at all. It just makes it a miserable process for the, the claimant. Speaking of procedural and substantive law problems, COVID-19 has caused a lot of problems for the legal profession in general, but definitely with respect to the ability to have cases go forward. What impact has the pandemic had on your practice and what challenges have you faced? Wow, there's quite a few. What I've not seen is plaintiffs just wanting to settle their cases. My my clients, by and large, understand that Once we get into a lawsuit, it's probably going to be several years. No one expected this delay, of course, but plaintiffs are prepared for delay. What I am seeing are more insurance companies being unwilling to make reasonable offers because they know that my clients aren't going to get a trial date anytime soon. They're less willing to engage, I think, in good faith in mediation efforts because they really have no incentive. Uh, They know that the backlog of courts created um, on the criminal calendar is going to push most civil trials out until the first part of next year, at least. If we dare chance a, a Zoom trial or something that I'm hearing in other jurisdictions, There's a myriad of other problems that can result in mistrials. I just read of one in, in, um, I think it was back east, maybe New Jersey, where uh, there was a Zoom trial, but a lot of the jurors weren't, they weren't actively participating. They were, you know, laying in bed, they were checking other emails, they had other open screens, you know, and, and, and those create an enormous amount of difficulty for the practitioner who just wants to have their case heard. So the delay is really, really problematic. In addition to the delay, there's also the the challenge with how are jurors going to come back from COVID and how will they have been affected? Are they going to be more willing to hear of another person's injury and the difficult time they had 
given that they themselves, the jurors themselves may have been out of work for some time, lost someone close to them through COVID. So there's a lot of unknowns on the other side of this. I, I know that the national organization, the American Association for Justice is proceeding with studies to try to study juror attitudes. But I, I think there's just a lot of unknowns that, that we're just going to have to work through a little bit at a time. In my own practice, I've had some issues with judges acting as if the pandemic weren't a thing. Have you had any run-ins with judges in your own practice? I have, but not on that particular point. <laughs> um, I think, at least in Arizona, my experience has been most of the judges are willing to accommodate uh, courtroom appearances, which they weren't always willing to do. Even in trial, if you had a, a witness who was unavailable but could appear by phone, the judges were really reticent to permit that. But that has changed, and I'm seeing a lot of the the judges being more willing to allow you know Zoom appearances and telephonic appearances, deferring uh, to those types of of hearings rather than in person. And and my understanding is even the the jury screening protocols are are endeavoring to to adhere to social distancing requirements. I am the law is a law hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors. LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.